Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. We're only one week away from the start of that most wonderful and sinister month of the year, October. I'm not sure if it knows my affinity for the season, but the tree in my front yard has already given up the ghost. It's bright yellow, and the lawn is littered with leaf corpses. It seems like it's always the first one on the whole street to go. That either says something about me, the tree, or, I guess, my ability to care for it. Speaking of the changing seasons, I mentioned last week that our Patreon rewards are about to change, too. We're hard at work finalizing the details, but one thing I can guarantee is more dark delights are in store. More of the horror fiction you know and love. Keep your eyes and ears peeled in the next couple of weeks as we reveal more details. But, understandably, if you just can't wait, you can check out the benefits that you can receive right now by visiting patreon.com slash tales to terrify. I'm also just in the early stages of starting to put together our next merch pack which features the return of fan-favorite artist Jane Revae. She's cooked up some amazing new artwork that I think you're really gonna love. In a twisted sort of way, of course. And for those of you writers among us, I also wanted to let you know that, starting today, we'll be closing our flash fiction submissions until the end of October we've got a wealth of delightfully disturbing content to sift through. But in fairness to everyone who's already submitted and been waiting for a response, we've got a bit of catch-up to play. We hope to open again soon, so if you've got a delightfully dark morsel you're waiting to share, lock it away somewhere safe, and we'd love to take a read when we're open again in November. Last. But far from least, before we dive into our fiction this week, I'd like to send our deepest and darkest thanks to new patrons Tyler Bean, Alice, and Rob McDonald. Your sacrificial offerings not only make it possible to craft this demonic audioscape, but also make it so worthwhile to do so. 
Thank you so much for your support. This week, we crossed the 80 patrons mark. We're seriously just a handful shy of our goal. If you've ever considered donating, even just a dollar a month, now's the time. You could very well be the one who pushes us over the finish line. As I've said over the last few weeks, our goal isn't to make it rich or put money in our pockets. Every dollar goes back to the show, to the people that make it possible. Simply put, we'd like to pay our incredible contributors for the work that they do to make this show tick, our narrators and our staff. Again, patreon.com slash tales to terrify if you have the means. And if not, that's totally fine. Even a review on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Podchaser can make a big difference for our show. Now, I think it's time we moved on to our fiction. Our first story for the evening comes from Brad Kalachava. Brad Kalachava was born and raised in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and has a degree in anthropology and environmental studies from New York University. His short fiction has appeared in Ophelian, Bewildering Stories, Utopia Science Fiction, Sunshine Superhighway, and The Night's End. He lives in Brooklyn with his wife and their cat. Children of the Night, join me for Brad Kelechava's The Gumdrop People, a Tales to Terrify original. It's a hereditary discomfort. My mother was blessed by the curse. My grandfather confided to me that he could see them as well. One of those whispers he thought I would be too young to recall once my brain was fully formed. In truth, I wouldn't remember his words if I didn't experience it every day of my life. I've remained a bystander to their travesties, but thanks to the mind-flushing capabilities of the human brain, after hours of forcing oneself into slumber, I can tuck those incidences deep inside me. There they remain until another dark thought pitches their buoyancy, crashing the memory against the top of my skull like an ice cube fresh from the freezer. I recall one now. I had just stepped outside my stuffy apartment. Now that day was different as the gumdrop people weren't moving in their usual patterns. Most days I see their attenuated arms draped over a host's shoulders. Their fat bodies, like bisected spheres, bobbing on the backs of people from whom they occasionally nibble some cranium. That day, though, two gumdrop people abandoned their positions as tote bags lolling in the wind. Their hosts were a couple, and their baby rested in a stroller beside them. While the parents chatted about whose mother they needed to visit next, or whatever young, handsome married couples grumble about through their pair of smiles that isn't fooling anyone, the lanky arms of the gumdrop people entered the stroller, delving into shadows that housed new life. He cried. Poor little guy, he sure did cry. And his parents paid him no notice. They were too focused on each other and whatever semi-heated conversation they had yet to emerge from. To be fair, I was the only one who could see what really happened. And I did nothing. Taking my typical approach, I stood there and watched. The baby's cries stopped. Parents, having found some resolution, walked off, the stroller leaving behind two red trails painting whatever macabre road leads into hell. The gumdrop people returned to their favorite position locked behind the parents' napes. They didn't nibble much. They'd had their fill. 
I ran to my apartment and unloaded my breakfast onto the stairs of my second-floor walk-up. Once inside, I locked the door, opened my laptop, and searched for any keyword relating to the gruesome death of a young child. Nothing relevant came up. I searched Google for the topic all night, constantly refreshing the page for some bestowment of legitimacy placed upon the event from the almighty internet. Two days later, I finally found it. According to the fallacious news article, the child had died of sudden infant death syndrome. It was sudden, all right, but I knew the truth. I have the same news article open again as I prepare lunch. The URL is ingrained in my memory, but I make sure to delete it from my history each time I pull it up. Sometimes I worry that my perpetual searching brought the event into existence, but I don't have enough control over that. My impact will always be minimal. Letting my skillet heat up just a little too much, I fry up a burger patty. I take few liberties with the other components of my lunch, slipping the meat into a soft bun that I pulled straight from the package. As always, the burger intimates my body in a wave of discomfort. Meat has that effect, I guess. A bilious thread remains taut from my tonsils to my lower body. It's as if the meat, after sliding down my esophagus, is accepted by my body but my senses don't know what to do with the trail of residue left behind. Sustenance is sustenance, but I wish it wasn't so hard sometimes. Time passes quickly, and I'm soon ready for dinner. I peek up my curtains. My examination of the downtown area is perfunctory. Sighting humans, dogs, birds, the occasional squirrel, no gumdrop people. I take the risk, the same risk I take every day, and unlock my door. I've never really thought my locks would obstruct the gumdrop people, but sometimes security blankets are really just small pockets of warmth that fit their intrinsic purpose, if granted minimal thought. I see no gumdrop people. On this mild spring day, people participate in their blissful goings. The inexorable attrition by the parasites that loom over their neck is taking a break. For now. I don't get to see enough moments like these. For a man who is cursed with a second sight, I love these moments. A mild dinner from one of those health food places with few options without brown rice and avocado will help ease the tension of that nauseating string in my throat. To reach there, I need to pass through a small park. Occupying a single block, this park, now resplendent with greenery, used to be a colonial cemetery. The gumdrop people like it here. Even on a day like today, with a low forecast for their presence, four of them are present. Two are locked onto the backs of a young couple, and another pair bob in a hover at distance from any human being. Usually the gumdrop people operate aimlessly, but today, these two untethered beings travel with a purpose. They move towards the already paired couple. You know, which is odd, considering that the gumdrop people typically stay out of each other's way. Other than the two that... Hey, wait! The couple standing at the center of the park. Are they the same couple from a few months ago? Standing beside them is another child, a boy whose trauma of losing his younger brother may have finally escaped him based on the jocular look sweeping his face. His parents share his cheer on this wonderful spring day. I wonder how long it took them to recover from their loss and how often that slime reminding them of their lost son oozes throughout the system of their depleting bodies. The lone gumdrop people are getting closer. I need to warn them and the invisible evils in pursuit, but those are not the gumdrop people they need to worry about. One slender arm slithers off the back of the mother. The other arm slides across her shoulder blades as her gumdrop person releases its grip. The gumdrop person latches onto the father's back, lets go as well. The son, they're going for the boy. It wasn't enough for the bastards to steal just one member of this family. The first pair of gumdrop people is close, and the other pair rapidly approaches at their own sinister speed. It'll be over soon. I've seen this all happen before. I'm sure I'll see it again. What can be done? I'm the only person who can see these parasites. I can't simply scream about the invisible horrors that chip away at everyone's life force every day. People cross to the other side of the road to avoid guys who act like that. Tomorrow, the parents will discover their son's demise. The doctors will diagnose it, and the papers will report it as a random heart attack or sudden leukemia or something, anything but the truth. And I, along with my avocado rice bowl, will move on with my life. Or I can do something. I've never tried to do anything like this. 
In truth, I've always considered myself lucky that even though I can see them, the gumdrop people have never turned their attention to me. I've never wanted to do anything to revoke that status. But people are dying. Maybe if the gumdrop people were just chewing on the skulls of their host and inflicting no real long-term damage, it would be okay. The children are losing their lives. Whatever privilege I have in avoiding their gaze doesn't matter. I don't think. I've spent too much time thinking or pretending to. I charge the two dumb drop people closest to the boy. As I approach, I realize that this is not the same couple who lost their baby. I shrug off my stupidity and grasp the arm of the monster. At first, I'm shocked that I can grip it just as I would any corporeal creature. My astonishment only carries when, like a dry twig, the arm snaps off. The other arm of the creature wreathes wildly. It seems that it is reaching for me, preparing to retaliate. But these beings are incapable of such intention. I drive the heel of my foot into its pudgy face and slam it into the ground. I hear a loud crunch and a softer sloshing sound. I dive onto the other one, avoiding the stare of the three humans who likely see me wrestling with thin air. This time I tear off both its arms and press the weight of my torso onto the remaining soft globe, feeling it flatten beneath me. The other two go down just as easily. Seeing the four beasts lie dead over the graves of fallen soldiers lost to the redcoats, invisible to the innocence they have tormented, I fall to my knees and howl to the sky. They cannot fight me, but I can hurt them. Starting this day, I will do everything in my power to eliminate the gumdrop people from this world. One boy is safe now, but when I am finished, all children, from now until the end of time, will bear the honor of growing old. Just as importantly, my mind and heart will be at rest. Catching hold of myself, I finally worry about what the adults think of me. But that doesn't seem to matter. They are deep in a coughing fit. The father, his eyes glossed over and showing only the reddening whites, falls down. His arms, twisting in a slow, sinuous bend, press against the ground. His coughs turn into a heave. His wife falls to the ground and two gags in an asphyxiated tone. The son, as confused and dismayed as I am, gives a hasty grimace. I wonder if he can see the gumdrop people too. The gagging stops and the void is filled by a wretched groan. A small gray hand juts out from the father's agape mouth and clenches the center of his lips. Another hand emerges from the depths of his mouth and grabs the other side, its grip squeezing the man's pale cheeks from both sides. The gray hands straighten, and two thin rods slip out. The thing coming out gets stuck, and I turn to find the mother caught in the same position. Protruding from her mouth and pressing against her teeth, I see the face of a gumdrop person. Its dark, empty eyes stare right at me. Their heaving accelerates. The gumdrop people, their bodies no smaller than birth, squeeze out, plopping onto the ground, but recovering into their conventional hover. The parents seem to have recovered it well, and they stare at me. The fools, they surely fear what danger I might inflict onto their child, but cannot process the true threat. Another two pair of eyes lock onto me. They can see me, the gumdrop people, for the first time in my life have focused their attention onto me. Unlike their humans, these two do not just glance upon me in immobile incredulity. They float towards me. I can see no intentions in their dark, vacant eyes, but there is an inexorability to their motion. Any interest or hope I had in saving the boy falls to my toes, and I bolt. As I run through the park, you would think that a plague had taken over the town. All adults are forced to genuflect as their throats ugulate a gargling howl. Gumdrop people are being born around me. I can't believe I've never witnessed such a miraculous horror before. Maybe I really do have blinders on when it comes to these monsters. Perhaps everyone can see them with the naked eye, no differently than I do, but they refuse to accept it. I charge into my building and shut the door to my apartment. I fall to the floor and let my back slam against the door. They saw me. Well, who am I kidding? They could always see me. Bastards just didn't give a damn. I was benign to their needs, so they let me roam about in terror of their existence. There's a soft scratching on the other side of my door. I hear it in two places. Then four, six, eight, ten. I quickly get my laptop and return to my spot against the door. I search for sudden death. Nothing posted in my local paper today. I search again. The scratching intensifies. I have a duty to protect the people from this town from the unseen terror that only my eyes can decipher. But it comes from us. 
How on earth can one person fight that? I can at least try. I've revealed myself to them, so there's no hiding anymore. I shut my laptop and toss it across the floor. I rise and unlock the door. Twisting the doorknob, I swing the door open, prepared for whatever the gumdrop people have in store for me. That was Brad Kalachava's The Gumdrop People, as read by Steve Gagan. Steve Gagan was born and lives in the town of Winthrop on Boston's North Shore. A graduate of the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina, he spent the next seven years in the U.S. Navy as a mixed-gas diving and salvage officer. Stephen then joined the family insurance and tax preparation business. In his off time, his passions are sailing, cooking, and diving. He is the author of two books, Bravo 2 Sierra and Code Alpha, both military thrillers. He is also the author of several short stories and is working on his third novel. His two greatest adventures are diving on the USS Arizona in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii in 1983, and participating in an expedition down to the RMS Titanic off of Newfoundland, Canada in 2001. Stephen is married to his wife Grace and has two children, Kyle and Amanda. Find out more about Stephen at his website, stephenrgagan.com. Thank you, Stephen. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Our second tale tonight comes from J.M. Merritt. A fan of horror since she first watched The X-Files as a toddler, a nerd for bizarre history and folklore. J.M. can't seem to stop writing stories about hands of glory and secret paths frequented by the dead. Right now, she's busy working on a novel about a murdered goddess hiding at the center of an unspooling universe. Listen with me, children of the night, to J.M. Merritt's The Bargain. 
a Tales to Terrify original. They say the old gods were murdered at the beginning of time. They say the ribs and spines of the dead make up the firmament. The gods are dead, but sometimes the dead get hungry. You see, the seams between this world and the next are stretched thin, tugged apart to the point of snapping, and something lingers in those gaps. A thing that brings life to the long dead. Picture a crumbling military outpost perched on the very edge of the world, stones chipped away by time tumbling into the abyss. Pity a soldier sent to this blasted place, and the two women whose fates were tethered to hers by the pen of a spiteful god. The colonel, the lieutenant, and the private made their way down the side of the cliff, inch by precarious inch. Pebbles knocked loose by uncareful boots vanished into the dark, devoured by myriad mouths. Tasked with pulling the seams tight, they had been ordered to mend the tear between worlds. The terrain was rough, jagged shards of enormous ribs jutting out of the marshy green-black earth. The outpost was a tiny building, barely more than a shed, hastily cobbled together from chunks of granite and it sat at the edge of a cliff with a vertical drop. It was as if a giant had taken a knife and neatly sliced a wedge off the edge of a mountain. At the bottom was the gap, a meter-wide gash in the fabric of reality, endless and vanta black. Beyond the cliff lay another world, a world of bone, bare trees, and the long dead, a land crudely tacked onto this one. The cliff made up the shoulder of a dead god, petrified by the rising sun. The god's chest formed a crater, ribs looming up like yellowing trees, bare of leaves and branches. Inside the cavity, where its hearth once laid, was a marshland bisected by the abyss. This god, one of many felled by a virus long ago, formed a bridge between two worlds. The three soldiers sent to the edge of the world as punishment, had been bound with an impossible task. The world was knitted out of one endless, unfathomable thread. Find that thread and pull it taut, bring the edges of the gash together and stall the unraveling of reality. Bound by the uneasy camaraderie of cellmates from a military prison, they smiled and laughed at first. Voiceless, they communicated with gestures, They joked, telling anecdotes of their days before the draft had stolen them away from their old lives. It was a three-day journey from the top of the cliff to the base, and they made camp each night, taking turns to keep watch for nighttime predators. Tuneless, they hummed to pass the time when they could not communicate with hand signals. Eventually, the path narrowed, and they were forced to walk in a single file, It was on the third day of the journey that the gash between the worlds began to influence them. As they neared the gash, they felt increasingly lightheaded. A miasma, syrup thick and dark, descended over them. The general grew impatient with the lieutenant's slow pace and the private's unwillingness to venture too far ahead. The general snarled, fingers curling into a fist. She stared at the private, from the corner of her eye, and she regarded the cliff wall. 
she considered the fragility of her subordinate skull. The miasma thickened. There was no sound in this place, no birds or insect, only mounds of corpses, perfect and untouched by bacteria. That did not mean this place was deserted, and as if alerted by the presence of the still living, the dead hearkened to their breathing. Piles of dead insects, hard and desiccated, jangled like beads as they poured towards the soldiers. The dead things coalesced into lumps of meat and bone. They sank into the mud, gestating. A wordless whisper whistled between the ribs of the dead god, congealing into syllables. A crude approximation of speech, the sentient sound compressed itself into a single thought, a strand of words, and it sought a viable host. The general ignored the dead things. The others did not. The private muttered wordlessly to herself, scrunching her hands into her clothes. Night was falling, rapid and thick, and it had taken far longer than it should to scale a cliff of this size. It was as if time had been stretched to the point of snapping. They had no time to return, nowhere to rest, and they had no choice but to carry on in the dark sightless. The path was too narrow to make camp without rolling off the edge in their sleep. The general led the lieutenant trailing behind, and the private lingered in the middle, hesitant to fall behind, but unwilling to take point. The lieutenant, blinded by the setting sun, gestured angrily. She turned to the general and opened her mouth, revealing a dark stump where her tongue should have been. This was a place where speech was unwelcome, where words could reshape the world, so the woman had been rendered tongueless. The general ignored the lieutenant, focusing on her goal. Her tongue had been torn out, but she should be able to redeem herself. She would be permitted to grow a new one. She had to succeed at all costs. The cliff shifted, abrupt and violent. The earth juddered, and the private cried out, wordless, hands scrabbling at the glass-smooth cliff wall. She stumbled, and the lieutenant peered past her inferior into the abyss. It was a hungry thing, and a voice burrowed into the general's ear. Feed it, it said, and the lieutenant's eyebrows arched. She had heard it too. The private, shuffling forward ever on, did not. She didn't notice how the general fell into step behind her, hands pressed flat against the wall, one foot painstakingly placed in front of the other as she inched her way down the path barely a foot wide. They stopped a while, motionless, waiting for the earthquake to subside, hands pressed against the cliff wall. It grew warm to the touch, and a heartbeat bloomed under their hands. The moon rose, high and round and jaundice yellow. It was bright enough to see by. Feed it, the voice snapped, insistent, and the auditory equivalent of an ice pick thrust itself through the general's frontal lobe. Expressionless, silent, she loomed behind the private. The lieutenant nodded, a hand pressed to her forehead. It had to be done. The abyss was hungry. It needed nourishment. The general placed a heavy hand on the private's shoulder, and she mouthed, I dedicate this sacrifice in the name of... Even without speech, even in thought, the name was unspeakable and it rent her mind in two. Startled, the private twisted out of her grip, and she scurried back down the track, heading towards a narrow patch of marshland. It was a spare place, only a meter wide, and hemmed entirely by primordial darkness. The only way back was up, and past her superior officers. Barring her teeth, the private turned, fist raised. The lieutenant shoved into the general. With a sharp, ruthless twist, she seized the general and snapped her neck. She threw her off the cliff. In the silence of her mind, she roared, I offer this sacrifice in the name of he who was murdered last. The general dropped, limp, into the gash. She vanished from view. The private had grown up in a slum, 
daily wading through the filth at the edge of the broad river in search of the glimmer of gold. A watch, a ring, a coin. They dropped from the pockets and hands of the wealthy surface dwellers through the narrow darkness of a sewer grate. There, and gone forever in an instant, Expressionless, the lieutenant watched the hungry earth fight with the abyss over the dead woman's corpse. They tore her in half, organs exposed and glimmering in the moonlight, like ruby seeds spilling out of an overripe pomegranate. The earth shifted once more, as it absorbed what it could from the dead woman. Ribs sticking out of the stinking marshland took on a dull shine as skin grew over them. Ancient wounds began to knit closed. Then, feed it, the voice corkscrewed its way inside the lieutenant's skull. She turned her attention to the base of the cliff, to the private, and her lips curled in a sneer. The lieutenant would survive at all costs, and she would feed this thing. Its thoughts, alien and unwelcome, scurried around inside her skull, like a centipede gnawing on her brain, pushing on her eyes from the inside. Blood, thick and dark, dribbled down her face from her eyes, from her nose. The sky rippled. Tall, narrow things dragged themselves out of the gash between worlds. Like ants massing around an injured beetle, they swarmed up the cliff face, while the lieutenant closed the distance between her and the private. Raw, skinless hands seized her ankles, her shins snapping them like toothpicks. Relentless she carried on, mouth stretched wide in a wordless scream. The lieutenant fell upon the private, tearing at hair, fingernails gouging at flesh, indifferent to the dead things vivisecting her. The private twisted and bit, relying on her smaller statue. Like a rabbit fighting a fox, she used her teeth. With three swift bites, the private tore out the lieutenant's throat. Blood filled her mouth and the warm salt taste making her gag. Yet the lieutenant did not give up. The dead seized the edges of her, and they unspooled her, pulling off her skin like the winding sheet on a corpse. They folded her, and her bones snapped as her knees bent in reverse. The private shoved the lieutenant into the gash, and a parasitic thought leapt from one dead woman to the other who still yet lived. The private doubled over, clawing at her mouth, helplessly thinking, I dedicate this death to... She gagged on the thought. Her tongue had been torn out at the root on the day she was dragged out of the slums and into a truck that bore her to a military compound. Perfectly square, gray bricks arranged in perfectly square, gray buildings. The compound had been her own hell and her home. They had stolen her name, shattering it into pieces, and they had reshaped her, revoking her right to speech. Her tongue, a privilege afforded to those who had not been sent to the edge of the world on a suicide mission, pulsed and bled. It grew back. The bones of the dead god became slick once more as it accepted the lieutenant's unwilling sacrifice. Blood clotted in a long, dead chest, began to flow freely. A wound, round and ragged from an ancient murder, sealed itself shut. The dead god began to stir. The miasma, thick and impenetrable as the worst sort of smog, settled over the corpse like a shroud, and something wiggled inside the massive crater of a wound. The private, roughly wiping blood away from her mouth with the back of one hand, regarded the distance between her and the narrow trail up to the outpost, and she thought, I still have a job to do. She considered the dead things, and thought of how they sat perfectly still now, eyeless and bald, waiting for her to run. Backing away a pace or two, she took a running leap over the abyss landing in the marsh on the other side. The private sank to her waist, the dead, mobilized, and on elbows and knees they crawled towards her, moving with impossible speed. The private struggled, clawed at the dirt, dragging herself forward into firmer earth. Her boots were suctioned off her feet. The dead scrambled over the marsh, and one seized her hair, 
tugging as if trying to scalp her in the most literal sense. She screamed, clawing at exposed muscle, the thing's caustic blood burning great welts into her flesh. The private one free, and she fled into the forest, barefoot and utterly lost. She ran through an endless night, rocks and brambles slicing open the soles of her feet and leaving an easy trail for the dead to follow. For years she ran, time contorting into unknowable shapes, until she came upon a bow-legged creature. An old man in appearance, its legs were triple-jointed, and it stood over a mass of wet blood and shredded meat. Somewhere in that mass lay a human face. This was a Tompton, she knew, a murderous thing that hunted for organs and bore the hearts and livers of its prey back to its woodland masters. Bloated on a feast of rotten meat, it regarded her with cold eyes. I seek sanctuary, she spat. It was not her world, and she could not go back, not until those things were gone, and that gash in reality was sealed shut. It nodded, and, chittering to itself, it seized her hand and dragged her through the forest, through thickets and brambles, to the heart of the woods. Viscera festooned the towering pines like bunting, dark shapes flittered between the trees, bowing over a mound of organs. The parasitic thought grew, finding itself in its intended destination. It burrowed down her spine, making itself at home inside her chest. The private gasped as it scooped out the soft parts, hollowing out her rib cage. Her mind was flooded with answers she did not want, knowledge that tore her mind to shreds. The hole in her abdomen was a miniature version of the crater inside the chest of the dead god, a creature that had made a deal with the thing in the void, in exchange for a sliver of its old divinity. The thing did not kill her. It did not want to. A fraction of a much larger whole, each part it's conscious aware of and drawn to its other cells, it was lonely after millennia on the outskirts of reality. It sought out the living, desperate to draw them in, spitting out the pulp that was once her heart. The thought laid eggs inside her ribcage. Her blood clotted. The wound opened and raw as the thing curled around her lungs. It pulled her lips into a tight smile, and it dragged her towards the old gods. The Tompton fled into the trees. Swiftly, the infection spread. It dragged her, fully conscious and trapped within her own skin, back towards the gash between worlds. The Tompton, accompanied by a retinue of its kin, followed at a distance, and it watched as the private stomped back through the night. They hissed but kept their distance, leery of her. She paid them no mind, unable to so much as turn her head. She fell to her knees at the edge of the abyss, hands scrabbling in the mud, searching. The dead gathered around her, all-encompassing, and they embraced her, bones sinking into her flesh as she unwillingly absorbed them. The private felt something cold and brittle, hidden just under the surface of the marsh water the string from which all things were woven. She recalled dimly that she had originally been tasked with stitching this seam closed, or at least pulling the threads together. Instead, she put a hand under the loose loops of thread hanging between either side of the gap between worlds. Her hand, made sharp with a thought, slashed through the string with ease, like the metaphysical equivalent of a seam ripper. Gritting her teeth, she pulled as hard as she could, nearly tearing herself in half with the effort. Spine broken, she slumped to the ground and watched with disinterest as a million more creatures spilled out of the void. They moved like ants seeking entry to a house in search of sugar, or bacteria flooding a wound. The private lay on her back, subsumed by the ravenous, lonely dead, watching the stars overhead unravel and flicker out. She watched the unspooling of reality speed up a hundredfold. As if it was violently rent in two by something on the other side, she had no idea what, nor did she care to know. 
rendered thoughtless, careless, and paralyzed. She lay there for days in an unending night, never quite realizing she hadn't eaten since she, the lieutenant, and the general had last made camp on the side of that cliff. The private did not think about how she never grew tired or felt pain or how the freezing marsh wind never bothered her. Then, all at once, the tide of the dead vanished as they fled back into the towns and cities intent on howling out every living thing they could find, intent on spreading the infection. Abruptly, the private regained her sense of self, Unable to feel her legs, she panicked, crying out and trying to haul herself into a sitting position. Her bones, so brittle from the invasion of a parasitic thought, shattered. First her arms, then her neck, just below her chin. She blinked, realizing she should have been dead, but she was merely paralyzed from the neck down. Suddenly, unaware that she was unable to move, unable to die, and trapped at the edge of reality, she cried out, silent. Then the thing in her chest propped her up, cooing to show her the widening of the abyss. Soon she would fall, helpless, into the gap between stars, but it would not kill her, nothing would. When she asked why, pleading internally to be freed from this torment, the thing in her chest said, I can gift you feeling. You can feel your legs if you want. Overhead, dawn broke. The creature moved her limp arm, checking her watch. The endless darkness had only lasted a single night. Inside her own head, desperate, in unthinking, she cried out, Yes, please, yes! Only it was a devil's bargain, exactly worded, and utterly false. The agony of shattered bone tearing through flesh shot through her, and yet she still could not move, could not scream. And when she asked why this thing did not kill her like her superior officers, it said, Because I am lonely, forever lonely drifting through the endless dark. But you brought me here, lovely girl, and I will grant you a boon, eternal life, and, in exchange, I will nest in your chest and spore a million young, and we will be together until the end of everything. That was J.M. Merritt's The Bargain, as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is a narrator who has read for Far-Fetched Fables, Starship Sofa, and, of course, Tales to Terrify, where he currently volunteers as managing editor. When not day-jobbing, he enjoys listening to fiction podcasts and audio drama. He shares life with an amazing partner, dog, and a cat. Thank you, as always, Seth. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Amazing fans like Kathy Robinson, a.k.a. Deadly Blonde. If you're not a supporter already, be like Kathy. Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into the show to help make it as dark and devious as possible and we appreciate it so much. 
Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Brian Rollins, and myself, Drew Sebastini with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we're swallowed by decay with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.